Hi, for those of you who don't know, know me, my name is Anne with the Fairbanks Community Food Bank, um, where we collect local surplus food and then get to sit back and see how God's going to use it. So I have the opportunity today to share some God moments with you. And God moments is how we function at the food bank. We have learned to expect miracles. One of my favorite moments in the height of the difficulties in the last couple of years is we were completely boxed in with an issue, and it was a big issue. It was, it was one of those that was an absolutely impossible to overcome issue. And our warehouse manager, who was the one that was kind of having to deal his way through it, listened to all the conversation, listened to all the problems, and he sat back for a moment, and he's a quiet, soft-spoken man, man of few words, and he said, you know, we're going to get what we need because that's just what happens here. My mom often tells stories of looking through the warehouse and seeing that we had absolutely no milk. And so she would start praying, God, we really need milk. And minutes later, minutes later, the milk would arrive on the truck. And that was absolutely amazing. And for years, she loved that and cherished that. And then one day she had a realization. The milk was on the truck before she started praying. Her job wasn't to inform God of what we needed at the food bank. Her job was to cheerlead and to tell others what God was doing at the food bank to meet the needs. And then she taught that to us. And the rest of us at the food bank were able to learn to enjoy and look for the miracles because they kept happening all around us. Some other miracles over the years. Um, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. We lost a third of our volunteers in the first couple weeks of COVID because we had to. A lot of our volunteers are folks that were in the high-risk category. Within six weeks, we had 144 new volunteers. God provided the labor we needed. This last year during Thanksgiving, we were all over the news because we went from 100 um, turkeys and food box items to 2,500 in 10 days. Let me tell you, that was really fun. Intense, but fun. Sometimes God's a little intense with his miracles, right? But boy, was that an amazing one. A few years ago, also at Thanksgiving, we had completely run out of candy yams. We were halfway through our distribution and completely out of candy yams. But every single time our warehouse manager would walk up front and look at the front food donation door, there were enough cases to get through that round of packing every time. Or the time we were at the Thanksgiving distribution, and it was done. We were out of food. It had been such an intense time that we actually only even had turkey hot dogs for the last few boxes, but it was something. We had food. We could give it out. And we got to the end of the distribution, and we were tired and empty. And Sam was shutting everything down, and she walked outside into the yard and in drove a truck. And she went up to talk to the gentleman, and the gentleman said, I wasn't able to get any food today. You think I could tell these stories without the tears, right? God's too amazing. So I'm out of food. I have a family. I couldn't make the distribution. And Sam said, oh my goodness, we don't have any food either. And she's out there asking God, what are we going to do? Up drove another car. with a food box that they'd created that they hadn't had time to drop off earlier and wondered if there was a family they could give it to. 
And Sam got to stand there and watch one family give the food but that had been made for the other family to them and drive away when we had nothing else to share. At the Fairbanks Community Food Bank, we know that God knows what we need to serve this community. We know. We know that this is actually his food bank, not ours. We don't have to fear because he's got it covered. He knows who will need the food. He knows how we're going to get it. And he knows how we're going to get it to them every day. Because we desire to be available, we get to be a part of his blessings. To the volunteers who sit in this church today with your food distribution and your food ministry, Volunteers like Harmony and Frank, like Samantha and Chris, like Katie and David, like Edna, like all the many I haven't mentioned. You're counted among our blessings. You brought us hope when all the world was shutting down and agencies started to disappear because they were shutting down and you guys stepped up. You brought us hope. You showed our crew that this community will stand together and feed the hungry, as God calls us to do. When Salvation Army decided to stop doing their Thanksgiving distributions two years ago, it was Journey, it was you who stepped up to be available. You made sure families that would have gone without received the food that God is preparing for them. You are one of our miracles at the food bank. You provided in the last 12 months 117,777 pounds. That's 59 tons of food that went through your distribution in the last 12 months. Thank you for being available and allowing God to use you in his miracles of feeding the thousands in interior Alaska. In Jesus Christ, we can find satisfaction he is the great shalom. He is peace incarnate. And peace simply means having adequate resources. And so we've been kind of working through uh, the highlights of the Gospel of Mark. And so today I want us to look at Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Now, just to give you a setting here, so this is the feeding of the 4,000. Earlier, there was the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, these are two different incidents. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all the Gospels. The feeding of the 4,000 is recorded in only two of the Gospels. And the feeding of the 5,000 is a Jewish audience. The feeding of the 4,000, because of where it's at, is probably mostly a Gentile audience. And so it's a, a little different context and a little different setting. And this one honestly doesn't get as much uh, ink, as much attention. Uh, most people tend to focus on the feeding of the 5,000. But I want us to look at this today, uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. So um, hang with me as we read through this. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Three days 
I mean, think of that. Think of that commitment to come and hear him and listen to him. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered. Now, here's the thing. So the feeding of the 5,000 has already happened in the timeline. So what I expect, his disciples answer, what I expect is, hey, remember when you fed the 5,000 with you know, only five loaves and two fish? Is this that kind of moment, Jesus? That's what I expect. That's not what it says. His disciples answered him, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. So he makes sure they understand how dire the situation is. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks. I love that. He gives thanks for what they have, which is completely inadequate. At least that's what it looks like. He broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were, this is my favorite word in the text, satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, if you look at the word here for baskets, the, um, the baskets that are talked about here are different than the baskets in the feeding of the 5,000. The baskets in the feeding of the 5,000 are kind of these small baskets that had to do, you know, like the Jewish people would have their lunch and they'd carry it in these little baskets. The um, these baskets are, it's, this is the same idea as what we see in Acts chapter 9, where the Apostle Paul is escaping because they're trying to hurt him, kill him. And so they put him in a basket and lower him over a wall in a city. So this is like a, almost like a hamper. It's like a huge rope basket. And so afterwards, they pick up these seven huge baskets of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present after he had sent them away. Now also understand in ancient culture, you would only count the men. So we don't know exactly how many. Um, this is 4,000 men would be the way this is normally understood. So if most of them are married, if there's several kids, I mean, this could be thousands upon thousands beyond what's being said here. So when I look at this particular passage, I think about this idea of satisfaction, but going beyond just physical satisfaction when we eat a meal even though it's a miraculous meal, I want to think about um, how do we find satisfaction? And for me, that word has to do with peace. And so we'll look at an acrostic as we look at this passage, and that is peace, you know, and we'll use P-E-A-C-E. And so the first part of living a life that you are satisfied with, that you experience that satisfaction, is to have a passion for the truth. The truth being the person of Christ and also the, the truth of the Scripture, the truth of God's Word. So we have the, the walking in the flesh Word that is Jesus Himself, and then we have the written Word of God. They are both this incredible revelation of God. When you look at our, our text again, during those days, chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, the large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called the disciples and said, I have compassion. They have already been with me three days. Now, I want you to stop and think about the excitement level, the commitment level for you to go to something and not eat for three days. 
Like, what if we had a three-day revival here, no food, you've got to stay the whole time, three days. I, I love their passion for the truth. The person of Jesus Christ, the revelation that he is giving, there is a hunger here. And we see this today. I don't think we see it as much in, in our lives, unfortunately, and in the American church. We're in a prosperity setting in general. But in persecution settings, you see this hunger. And it is profound. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen those videos where a people group, where they get Bibles in their heart language for the very first time. I mean, you can Google some of those. There's different ones put out by Pioneer Bible Translators, Wycliffe, and other Bible translations. And they get the Word of God for the very first time in their heart language. Not some trade language that they kind of know, but they actually can read it and grab hold of it. There's a passion here for the truth. There's this, this commitment. And I think we need to stop and assess this, and think about this. You know, it is easy in our setting to kind of partially commit. Some of you grew up in church, like I did. I grew up in church, and we had a song that we sang fairly often, and it was, I Surrender All. And many have commented that, honestly, to be accurate, it was probably more accurate for most of us if we sang, I Surrender Some. Right? Kind of a, a classic example from history, these knights that would be baptized, they had this practice, the Knights of Templar, and they would actually, when they would baptize them, you know, dunk them under the water, they would actually hold up their sword and their sword arm um, and, and not get that wet. And the message was, Jesus, you can have the rest of it, but not this part of my life. And while most of us wouldn't do that with a sword, we might think about it with our wallet. We might think about it with our remote control, our, our entertainment choices. We might think about it with our sexuality, that Jesus is Lord, and I accept you as Lord, and I'm, I'm passionate about you. I'm, I want to follow you except this. I want you to think about that. What is, what is this in your life? Because if we're going to have a satisfied life, we need to be all in. We need to have a passion for the truth, for the truth incarnate, Jesus Christ Himself, and the truth revealed, the Word of God. I want to ask you this morning, what has being a follower of Jesus Christ ever cost you? I'll never forget a young lady in our recovery ministry. This was years ago. I remember having a conversation with her, and she had, had gotten some good clean time from a couple different addictions. And I'll never remember, I'll never forget having this conversation, and, and I was like, you know what? This boyfriend, he's got to go. He's still using. It's not going to work. He's going to pull you back in. That was a hard conversation. And I remember the relief when I saw her ditch that particular boyfriend. And I'm like, she's going to make it. And she did. 
She did make it. But their price was high. And so we have to be people. If we're going to live a life where we are satisfied, that we are passionate for the truth, for the person of Jesus Christ and what He calls us to. You know, I love John 3.16. It's at the heart of our faith. But we have to be very careful that we don't just weigh everything towards, you know, you believe, you trust. That's absolutely crucial. But the same Jesus who quoted John 3.16 also said this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Now think about that image. First century image of a cross is not our pretty little gold images that people wear. It is an instrument of death and humiliation and shame. And Jesus says, you want to follow me? You need to take up a cross daily. You need to follow me when it's painful, when it's difficult, when it's hard, when you're hungry. You want to be satisfied in life? You have to be all in. Not this partial, one foot in, one foot out. We see this over and over again in the Scripture, this all-in commitment, this passion for the truth. I love the story of Elisha in the Old Testament. He's a successful farmer. Even in a time of drought, he still has all these oxen. He's still out plowing his field. He's still managing to do okay. He's a wealthy guy. At least that's our impression. And Elijah comes to him, this old prophet about to leave uh, and step away from life, about to go to heaven. And he calls and invites Elisha to this life. And Elisha takes the yoke of his oxen, his many sets of oxen, and he burns it, and he cooks the, the meat of the oxen. And it's like he has a big party with his family, his friends, his community, and he says goodbye, and he goes. All in. In the New Testament, we see the apostles, and Jesus comes to them, and he says, follow me. And they dropped their nets, which represented their very lives, their vocation, and they follow him. We have had it easy. This is not fine print in the whole Christian deal. Jesus, when you read his preaching, he'll put this front and center that you've got to be all in. Kyle Eidelman, an author I appreciate, was preaching in Africa. And at the end of the service, these two young men made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. And the next day, he, you know, he's at the missionary house. And these two same young men show up and they each have a big bag. He's like, what's going on? And they said, well, our, our families and our villages have kicked us out. We can't stay where we lived anymore. And so he tries to comfort them and encourage them. He's afraid they're going to they're gonna quit. And they said, oh no, we understood that choosing to follow Jesus Christ, that this was part of it. This was part of the cost. And they decided anyway. And that is true many, many places around the world. And it may someday be true here. 
Jesus does not want to be your advisor, your consultant, your life coach. He wants to be and demands to be your Lord. That's how He approaches you. He doesn't hide that. He doesn't bury it. It's front and center. In Mark chapter 8, I also appreciate that He gives them the truth about their own resources. Mark chapter 8, verse 4 and 5. So He gives them the truth about Himself about who he is, but he also, about their own resources. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? So he asked, and they say seven. So he makes sure they know that there's nothing hidden in the back, plus a few fish. That's what they've got. They are absolutely, completely, what they have is completely inadequate. Now what the world's going to teach you, what our culture is going to teach you is that you count on yourself. That is a bad idea because you're completely inadequate. And I've never seen that on any classroom, you know, inspiring statement. You know, when you go to the public school, you are completely inadequate, but you are. You might as well know the truth. It is, I mean, it's not going to work. Life is not going to work the way you want it to work. You're not going to have that ultimately satisfying life on your own. Without Christ, you are nothing. Let me say that again. Without Christ, you are nothing. We are powerless to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the way that God wants it produced in our lives. To flourish, to thrive without Christ, without being connected to Him. I love John chapter 15, verse 4 and 5. I find it very freeing, very liberating. It says this, Remain in me, this is Jesus speaking, as also I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You are spitting your wheels if you go through this life without Jesus Christ. You will not be who God called you to be. You will not produce the fruit that he has called you to produce. You will not have the impact that you are hoping to have. And so when we look at peace, we see this passion for the truth. This is part of having a satisfying life. The E in this text is to exercise faith. Now obviously Jesus is the ultimate example of faith. He never doubts. He knows what's going to happen. And I don't know if this will hit you or not, but I just know growing up in church, I always viewed, you know, I'd read these stories in the gospel, and you know, I, we, we believe that God, uh, God the Son is fully God, so Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And so when I would read these stories in the gospel I, about Jesus doing a miracle, I'm like, oh, he just reached in on the God side and drew the power and did it. When I got to seminary, they explained it different, and I, I found it, kind of shocking and yet helpful. They said, no, you know, Hebrews talks about this and the scripture makes it clear that he lived life on our terms, that he faced life the way we face. He was fully human. And so he couldn't just dip into the deity side anytime he needed. He had to live life on our terms. And so he walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. He relied on the power of his Father. And so the idea was that he faced temptation, he faced life with the same tools that we did. And he still walked it out in perfection. Now, he is fully God. Please don't misunderstand me. 
And I thought that was really interesting and actually made the sinless life of Jesus, the profound, miraculous life of Jesus to me, even more impressive that he kind of had to face it in this different way. Martin Luther once said of faith, it is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. Jesus always trusted his Father. And so we are to exercise faith, and he certainly does it. Now, um, he points us to this. The last part of Mark chapter 10, verse 27, the last part of that verse, Jesus says, with God all things are possible. Now, the apostles in this passage are not impressive. Their faith is pretty weak. But I love that he takes whatever somebody has and he works with that. You exercise faith with whatever you have. With Moses in the Old Testament, he had a staff. And God used that staff to become this incredible, miraculous sign of authority. And he could raise the staff in the Red Sea parts. He could turn the staff through the miraculous power of God into a snake that ate these other snakes that the Egyptian magicians could do. And, and so it's worth asking yourself, what do I have in my hand? What has God given me that I can exercise faith with? Maybe it's a talent. Maybe it's some financial resources. Maybe it's certain relationships. How, where can I exercise faith? What has God put into my hand? A story I love that comes from the um, ministry of Elisha in the Old Testament. Elisha the prophet had a widow come to him, and she had this massive debt, and she had been married to a prophet, been married to a, a preacher, and he died, and there was this massive debt. And so the creditor's coming, and in that day and age, she faced the reality that this creditor would come and take her two sons and make them slaves to pay the debt. She comes to the man of God and says, what can I do about this? And I think it's interesting. He says, well, what do you have? And he's going to do a miracle, but he says, what, what do you have? She says, well, I have a little bit of, you know, a little oil. He says, okay, you gather every jar, vase, anything you can find, any container in your house. You go to your neighbors. You run down the road. You go to anybody you can. Get as many containers as you possibly can. And then I want you to take that little bit of oil you have and start pouring it into other containers. And God does a miracle of provision, and she starts pouring. And when she got to the final container, then finally it runs out. And then she took the oil that God provided in this miraculous way. She sold the oil, and it was enough to save her two sons, to pay off this debt, and God provided for her. So I guess I'm going to ask this morning... Where do you need to exercise faith? What has God put in your hand that you need to trust Him with? One author I read said, you know, if you want the supernatural in your life, you do the natural, God will come up with the super. You know, so you walk by faith. And He'll do what you can't do. These apostles, they may have been muttering under their breath, but when Jesus says, pass it out, they passed it out. And it multiplied. Now, I think you just have to walk by faith. You know, Deli and I, I guess it's been 17 years now, you know, came up here, just us in a minivan with four kids at the time. 
And I'll never forget, we were at the fair. We were announcing, okay, we're going to have this, you know, this is August. We're at the fair. We have a booth. We're trying to meet people in the community. I didn't know anybody really. Delhi had some family here. And, and we're advertising this church that's going to begin in October. And Delhi, you know, kind of chuckled. And she says, so who's going to lead worship at this church here really soon? And I said, I don't know. So, but God knows. And we got like right up to it. And I, you know, I did my part, you know, had a little ad on fairbankshelpwanted.com. And this guy who was a banker looked on there because his bank was transferring him to Fairbanks. And he's like, oh. And so he, con- he reaches out to me and says, hey, my wife's a worship leader. And so I went down to Wasilla and, and watched her and we connect with her. And right before we launched, she came on board. And so God provided in that way. And then later, they moved um, away, moved to Oklahoma. His job took him somewhere else. And so, um, and we had to kind of navigate that gap. And, and as we talked about it, Deli goes, well, you know, we should pray for, um, I knew this guy in the Nazarene church, Totem Park, this um, guy named Dave Wilcoxon. We should pray for a, a worship leader like Dave Wilcoxon. I didn't know Dave Wilcoxon. And so I prayed for that. And sure enough, God sent us the real thing, the deal, <laughs> the original. I love stuff like that, where he just, he just provides. Now, so exercise faith, that's the E in peace. The A in peace is appreciate God's actions. Look at what Jesus does, Mark chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. In verse 6, so he, he takes the seven loaves, he gives thanks. And then it goes on, and he gets the small fish, just a few fish, and he what? He gives thanks. Now, you could read that and just say, well, you know, they're praying before a meal. I think it is so crucial that um, we are appreciative of what God does, that we notice what he does, that we don't miss it. Mark chapter 6, verse 52 Notice what it says about the apostles. So they saw the feeding of the 5,000. Here's a summary statement. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They saw a miracle that was talked about in all four Gospels. It's that significant. It's that important. And we're told that the apostles didn't quite get it. What do you think they thought happened? What in the world But part of it is stopping, hitting pause, and appreciating what God does. Appreciating when something works out, when He makes something happen. It's possible to miss miracles. It's possible to miss God's work. Um, I love the Old Testament because they had this practice of when God would do something, they would actually set up a stone or set up a monument God parts the uh, Jordan River at flood time, and they each, you know, each person, um, a representative from each tribe, picks up a stone from the middle, and then they, on the edge of the river, they they build this monument. So when people walk by, they tell the story. Remember what God did here? Keeping a journal would be a way to do this. Having, you know, some kind of visual in your home when God really shows up for your family, you know, make a note of that. Appreciate God's actions. That's the A in peace. It is important that we 
walk out of that gratitude and appreciation. Jesus has this huge crowd in the Decropolis, in this area of ten cities, and he has this huge crowd in a mostly Gentile area, and the text does not say why. I mean, he's a miracle worker, and I think some of the rumors, but I, here's what I think. It wasn't that long ago, a few weeks ago, we talked about this crazy naked guy who lived in a cemetery. And Jesus drove out a bunch of demons in this man. And this man wanted to come with Jesus, and Jesus says, no, you have to stay here. Go back and tell people what the Lord has done with your life. And so Jesus shows up later in this same general area, and thousands of people show up. Well, I think that is the evangelistic fruit of Crazy Bill running around, telling his story, and they're like, oh, we remember what you were like. God made a difference in your life. And so, I think we have to stop and appreciate what God has done. Somebody here at church asked me, he goes, hey, could you give me, I hear you like to give tours of the building and tell God stories. I'm like, I love doing that. Feel free to ask me to do that. I love to tell about, you know, the land and the $100,000 gift that got the foundation and the land price went from $2.3 million down to $500,000. And I mean, it's just story after story after story. I walk into this place and I'm like, wow, God, we didn't do this. We just walked by faith. God did it. And He's so gracious. He's so gracious. One Christian leader said this. He said, For all that has been, thanks. And for all that shall be, yes. Appreciate God's actions. Look for them. Watch for them. Notice them. Celebrate them. That's the A in peace. The C in peace is compassionate eyes. You know, we live a life that's satisfied when we have compassion on other people when we see them, when we notice them. This is the third time in the Gospel of Mark that the compassion of Jesus is mentioned. Notice that Jesus looks at them, Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 3 again, and in verse 2 he says, I have compassion for these people. They've been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. I send, if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. He sees their situation. He's concerned about them. And if you want to have a life that you're satisfied with, be a person of compassion. Be a person that looks beyond just yourself. It is so crucial. Everybody, everybody has a story. Even when someone acts terrible, there's always a story. Give them the gift of seeing them. It's been all over Facebook and the news and the, the whole Will Smith smacks Chris Rock for a, uh, a joke about Will Smith's wife who has a disease that her hair, some of her hair falls out. And Will Smith at the you know, Academy Awards gets up and goes and smacks this comedian across the face. I mean, just completely out of line. You know, whether it's a bad joke or not, just smacks him. If you and I did that, we would be arrested, Right? See, that's, that's incredible privilege right there. And you look at something like this, and I don't want to excuse it at all, but I happened a while back, and I'm not sure why I don't do this a lot, but 
I was intrigued, and so I actually read Will Smith's 400-page autobiography. It was interesting. I don't give it the pastoral endorsement. There's a lot of cussing in it, so don't, you know, read it to your kids. Pastor said, this is a good book. No, no, no. (laughs) I read it. (laughs) It was interesting. Right out of the gate, he tells a story about when he was nine years old, and he said, I watched my dad beat my mom, and she's spitting blood, and he said, I stood there, and the, one of the prominent, most prominent messages of my young life was, I am a coward, because I did nothing. And so I suspect that's the button that the comedian stepped on. I'm a coward, and I did nothing. He's nine years old. I'm not excusing what he did. You can't do that. Everybody has a story. When you take in that foster kid, and you're like, you know, you can eat, and and you provide good meals, and you're frustrated because the kid grabs some food and, you know, makes a huge mess in the bed or somewhere in the room because they're hoarding and stashing food. There's a story. They were hungry. And they didn't know when they were going to eat next. Everybody has a story. Have the eyes of compassion to see the person. It's an incredible gift. Jesus does it for this crowd. And we need to do it for the people in our lives It is so crucial that we have that compassionate eyes. You know, God often does the miraculous when it comes to basic needs. You know, he leads this nation of slaves out of Egypt through Moses, and they wander the wilderness because of their disobedience for not just months, not just years, decades. And for much of that time, they would go out every day except the Sabbath, and there would be manna for what could be a million people. I mean, have you had a large group in your home and and tried to provide for that? And God, day after day, He provided. God is our provider. And He has compassionate eyes. And if we are His representatives, we are to be people who are compassionate Everyone needs that incredible gift of being seen. I think of Elisha again. Elisha, if you've never done this, go study the ministry of Elisha and compare it to the ministry of Jesus. Elisha's like a little bit of a preview. Now, he's not Jesus by any stretch. But some of the miracles he does, it's like, a, like an arrow pointing to the Messiah, the ultimate Messiah, Jesus Christ, the God-man. 2 Kings chapter... Um, four. Oh well, I didn't write the chapter down. Second Kings, for, I don't know where this is. I think it's Second Kings chapter four, verse forty-two through forty-four. Maybe they have it behind me. I don't know. So a man came from Belshazzar, bringing the man of God twenty loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat. Elisha said. 
How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Now, not nearly as impressive as 5,000 or 4,000, but still impressive. This small amount, everybody gets what they need, and there's extra. And so we want to see... We want to have that compassion and that leads to a satisfied life because as we walk in compassion, we not only see the need and offer this this incredible gift, but as instruments of the gracious providing God of the Bible, as we pray about it, as we come alongside people, as we help individuals, we get to see God meet those needs and that is incredibly satisfying. The great John Wesley once said this, he said, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can. Anne Voskamp once said this, she said, compassion is our vocation. Frederick Buechner once said this about calling and and how it meshes with compassion. He said, said, find the place. Like, how, how do you know what your calling is? How do you know where to serve? How do you know where to volunteer? He says, find the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. And I love that. Some of you have a heart for the homeless. Some of you have a heart for foster children. Some of you have a heart for the hungry. Some of you have a heart for... Uh, sharing God's truth with children. Find what you're passionate about, how God's wired you, and where the need is. And you'll, you'll experience calling and joy, and you won't burn out as quickly. Now, there's still, you still have to have boundaries and be careful and all of that. So those compassionate eyes lead us to a satisfied life. Because we get to help people and be an instrument of God's grace, a channel of His mercy. The E in peace is expect God's favor. Expect God's favor. Now I want to be careful because we live in the health era of health and wealth on television. And, and you know, there'll be somebody that tells you that you're always going to be healthy, you're always going to be wealthy, you're going to have the biggest house in the block because you're a follower of Jesus. That is a lie. It's not true. Don't believe it. But here's the thing, God does give you favor, and it can look a lot of different ways. And it could be financial favor. God has done that. He certainly has done that in different uh, instances, different places. And it could be with health. It could be with impact. It could be in a lot of different ways. Sometimes, I know this, this rubs us wrong, but sometimes hardship is God's favor. Because that's what grows us, right? No pain, no gain. And so God is for us. He is for you. And we should expect God's favor. It's His blessing. It's His intervention on our life. It makes a difference. And I love the fact that God doesn't just, you know, Jesus feeds 4,000 people in this story. And that's just the men. So all the women, all the children as well. And these, what could be huge baskets of leftovers. I mean, this is, and so then, I I love this, where, so then they get to go share, whoever's dragging off the baskets, gets to go share that 
at their local food bank, I guess, in the village down the road. Because we have now these hamper full of food. And so I just go through life with this expectation. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that God is your Father, and He loves you, and He cares for you, and He is for you, and so He will give you favor. It's an incredible blessing. And it may not always look like what you want, but He will give you favor. One of the reasons I had Ann speak, and I'm not going to talk much about this point because I felt like she would hit it, and she did, just the favor of God, the provision of God. I mean, there are crazy stories in this church of how God has provided for individuals and this congregation. Those are enjoyable moments. And so I just want to encourage you to experience God's peace and at the end of your life to experience that ultimate satisfaction. The favor in Psalm 5, verse 12 says this, Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. Now, the beauty of God's favor, the ultimate part of it is not his gifts, but the giver, getting to know him. I would be very sad if my children, all they liked were gifts from me. My presence should matter. His presence is the greatest gift he gives us. That's, that's at the heart of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. It's the heart of our life here is the presence of God, experiencing his holiness and his love and his grace and his mercy. So the big idea this morning is following Jesus is the way of satisfaction. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for each person here. I thank you that a relationship with you is ultimately satisfying. It might be difficult, it might be challenging, but it is ultimately satisfying. Lord, we settle for so many things. We substitute, we lift up idols, we take pleasure and and put that in your spot. Lord, help us to be people that find deep, profound, substantial, eternal satisfaction where you promise it, and that is in relationship with you. And the focus of that being with your son, Jesus. Lord, at the end of life, may we sit back with great contentment, with a smile on our face, and have experienced that incredible satisfaction. This is our prayer in the powerful name of Jesus, the name above all names, our Lord and Savior. Amen.